Well, there was two squads of Kurds there, one on each side of it. I mean, both on the on the east side of the trench. Three ISIS are there, and I, I come up to it. Bullets are going. ISIS shooting at us. Ding, ding, ding. You know, whip, whip, whack, whack, whack. Ding. I come up to him and go, hey, what's going on? I said, there's three ISIS there. These guys are shooting. I went there. Um, rounds are coming in from me from ISIS, but they never hit me. I fell down because some rounds hit the ground underneath me, these, like these bricks. And grabbed the girl. Had a, she'd been there three days. By now, she's the only kid left alive. But ran back, gave her to the um, Syrian translator. Hey, welcome back to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. This episode is a little unique. MWI's Jake Moraldi talks to a guest who tells a story that took place when he wasn't serving in uniform. Dave Eubank is a former Army Infantry, Ranger, and Special Forces officer. After leaving the Army in the 1990s, he formed the Free Burma Rangers, a really sort of unique NGO that provides aid, medical assistance, and training to those in need, often in the middle of a conflict zone. For the past few years, Dave, his family, and members of the Free Burma Rangers have been working in Iraq alongside Kurdish and Iraqi government forces throughout much of the intense fighting to expel ISIS from that country. Now, the Free Burma Rangers are there to provide help, and they do, a lot of it. But in that environment, Dave and some from his team also found themselves occasionally as participants in the fighting. The two stories he shares in this episode show how difficult it can be in a war like that against ISIS to separate providing aid from the fighting that is going on all around. Before we get to the conversation, just a couple quick things. First, if you're enjoying The Spear, please take just a few seconds and give the podcast a rating or leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help as we continue to try to reach new listeners with the stories we feature. Second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. And third, there are some very honest but graphic descriptions of violence in this episode. All right, here's Jake Moraldi and Dave Eubank. Mr. Eubank, thanks so much for sitting down and taking the time to talk to us. Um, I want to lead off for people who maybe aren't familiar with, with you or the Free Burma Rangers with just your background and then what your organization does. All right. I'm Dave Eubank. I grew up as a missionary kid in Thailand. My parents are still there in their 80s. And I went to Texas A&M University after I got an Army ROTC scholarship in 1983. I was an infantry officer, served in Panama, and then I was in the 2nd Ranger Battalion. And then after that, I was a team leader in the 1st Special Forces Group. About 10 years total. Got out as a captain. They made me a major right when I got out. I don't know why. It was nice of them, though. And I went to Fuller Theological Seminary to see how I could serve God in other ways. Was invited by a tribe in Burma to come and help. That was 1993. And my got married to my wife, Karen. Went over to Burma extra legally. In other words, we didn't take a visa or a passport because it's a country at civil war. Sure. And started working with the ethnic minority groups. And we started something called Day of Prayer for Burma. And then we started something called Free Burma Rangers. And the Free Burma Rangers, we are a humanitarian relief organization that goes to the front lines, or in Burma it's not really in lines, just wherever the fighting is, to give help. That's medical and blankets and clothes, whatever people need. Hope, you're not forgotten. God hasn't forgotten you. We haven't forgotten you in love, standing with people in a difficult time. We're not a religious organization. You can believe in anything. We have Buddhists, Muslim, animists, atheists, agnostics, Christians, all kinds of people. Anybody can join us. 
But there's three rules. One is you can't run if people can't run. So that's courage. Second, you do this for love because we don't pay the teams. It's all volunteer. And third, you got to be able to read and write because to do good medicine or write reports, you got to be able to read and write. Sure. And I boil down the commander's intent of the Freedom Rangers to this, help the people and get the news out. Mm-hmm. So we have 70 teams in Burma, been operating there for 25 years. And in the last four years, because of the attacks of ISIS in Syria and Kurdistan and Iraq, we've also taken teams from Burma. These are ethnic Burma people, Shan, Karen, Kachin, Kareni tribesmen, medics mostly. Mm-hmm. And they're easily the equivalent of an 18 Delta and special forces. They're yeah. very quality medics with a lot of experience. We take, we've taught, took them over into the Middle East. Well, for the last four years, we've been d- doing also relief to displaced people who are fleeing, like the, the Yazidis up on Sinjar Mountain mm-hmm. in western um, Iraq. And also in the Battle of Mosul, we were part of the assault element for the 36th Brigade 9th Iraqi Armored Division mm-hmm. throughout the entire battle from east to west side. And there we were giving immediate medical care, front line with our medics, and my family is almost always with me. I have a wife and three kids, 17 and 15-year-old daughters, and a son who's 12. Of course, last year they're a year younger. But they say, were, we, we were talking to your son out in the hall about yeah. his, his CCP experiences. So. Right. So they all seen the dead body. My, do- my daughter was driving, and she's 16, driving an armored ambulance right up to the front, taking dead bodies and wounded out, having the vehicle hit and all that because she could drive stick, and some of the guys couldn't drive stick. So they've all grown up in the jungle with, with us, and they all know what it's like to hold on to a rucksack at night and bumble along behind because you don't need lights and the enemies on the left and right of you. They've grown up doing that. So we work as a family together along with this team. So that's what we've been doing the last 25 years, and also we've been to Sudan for a couple of missions. Okay. Well, I think what we're going to focus on today are some of your experiences in uh, Iraq and Syria especially because it's kind of the most recent and sort of most pertinent, especially given the the nature of the news today and, and the fighting that's still going on there. Um, so what I'd like to do is, is you mentioned before uh, we started this interview, a couple stories that maybe would be of value to people who, who maybe don't understand the way that the fighting is, has worked in Iraq and Syria, especially. Um, you know, we see pictures and you hear second and third and fourth hand sort of anecdotal things. Um, and, and I'm curious and I think it's it's important for us to understand what the fighting actually looks like on the ground there um, so I'm gonna kind of hand it over to you to talk uh, a a story about clearing some trenches in Kurdistan and we'll kind of work from from there so what was the circumstances around uh, you finding yourself in a trench with Kurdish forces uh, in northern Iraq right well I, I want to back up first because it's important to the story in our lives when we were invited to go help in Kurdistan, because we didn't know them, they didn't know us. And I, I brought my son Pete on the very first trip. He was like nine at the time. And the Kurdish defense minister said, who's that? I said, that's my son. He said, you brought your son into a war zone? I said, your kids are here. And he said, oh, you brought your most precious thing. I give you my most precious thing in my country. And when my family showed up, you know, again, usually not at the very front, but back helping people who were fleeing, they said, oh, you don't want anything from us. You really think we're equal. And that's important. But leading up to the trench fight, this was 2016, November, and we'd been involved since February 2015 okay. doing relief work and training Kurds at the front line in medical. And in October 2016, that's when the Iraqi army had closed in on Mosul, and that's when the Kurds started the big counteroffensive to drive ISIS out of Kurdish territory. 
And we were in all those fights. And we had many different firefights. I mean, one night, ISIS comes at us with 40 guys. Alu Akbar, you know, our, our fixed position, it was easy. I mean, a lot of bullets flying and scary, but we had them. But as it went on, ISIS started um, changing some of their plans, and they moved troops out of Bashika, which is on the Kurdish side, which is about 30 kilometers from Mosul, to Mosul. They're going to reinforce Mosul. They realize they can't hold these outer perimeters. So one particular morning, about 13 ISIS guys came through in a, in a line to break through this trench system that the Kurds had actually built to delineate the difference between Iraq and Kurdistan. And as they came out, it became a big firefight, shooting at us, we shooting at them. Ten ISIS died. Three ended up in a trench. Well, there was two squads of Kurds there, one on each side of it. I mean, both on the, on the east side of the trench. And they're shooting down in the trench, but the trench is deep. It's like six, seven feet deep, and it's about three, four feet wide, and it's, you know, 50 kilometers long or whatever and it winds around three ISIS are there and I, I come up to it and bullets are going ISIS shooting at us ding 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 and you know whip whip whack 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 ding I come up to him and go hey what's going on I said there's three ISIS there are you going to get them uh, and I lay down and, and the guys in ISIS were good they kept this, they kept two squads suppressed with just three guys mm-hmm. and I'm laying there and I take a couple shots with my AK and I think well I'm not going in there one I'll get killed second it's not my job mm-hmm. I'm an NGO Third, churches support me. I'm going to there killing people, man. Even if I live through it, they're going to stop supporting me. Mm-hmm. Fourth, more importantly, I'll be dead. Because no one, these guys aren't going to go with me. And I thought, it's their job. They'll go. The, the Kurds. And then I realized, they're not going to go. I know you had this experience. You realize, no one's going to go. Mm-hmm. Well, the day before, a guy had been in CAG. He just got out of the army. came through and was with us a few days. He handed me two frags he found in his gear. So I had two frags and an AK and a pistol. Do my best. Well, I was an infantry officer. Mm-hmm. We know we are trained to clear trenches sure. and, and all that. That was a long time ago. That's twenty something years ago. I'm fifty seven. And I was like, oh, okay, I know what to do. And I thought, okay. And I told the Kurds, I'm gonna go get them. And they're like, No, 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 mister. Uh. I said, Well, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna start killing people and someone's gotta get them. And they didn't know what to do. So I ran forward with my grenade to about fifteen yards, I think, from the trench and threw the first one in. Um, it's been years since I threw a grenade, but I practiced. As soon as I had it in my hands, I practiced. I'm like, this is important for combat. I practiced probably 30 times, taking everything but the pen out, just just for my muscle memory, just in case. That was the day before. I got it only one day. Got the day before, and I practiced probably 30 times. Put them back in a pouch. Kind of forgot about them. This firefight happens the next morning. I pull my frag out. I run up, throw it, go to the prone. I kind of forgotten how everything, you know, how bad it really is. Boosh. Go up. That's killed the first ISIS. I'm shooting into his body, but there's dirt and dust everywhere. I can't really see anything. I just see a form. I don't know. And I think they're all three there. And all of a sudden, bullets are whipping by my face, and I look down the long axis of the trench, and there, there's only there's only one guy dead at my feet, and I'm standing above the trench, and there's two guys down here, and they're they're lighting me up and missing. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. And I still remember the look on this guy's face. One guy, he looked at me with like that look when you've been burned in sports. Like, you made a mistake, and now you die. Very, very like... Not emotional in a sense. Yeah, sort, of, sort of matter of fact about yep. it. You screwed up. But number two, I, he looked at me with a hate I'd never seen before. And I dove out of the way and the bullets all went by my face. And I circled back around, went up, fragged this. I had my second, I had one more frag. I threw that. Then these two guys that were left are apart about 15, 20 yards apart in the trench. And I circled back around. I throw a frag in. He throws a frag out. And I found out later that first frag just messed his legs up pretty good but didn't kill him. He threw a frag out landed four meters from me put some shrapnel on my leg, gave me a, racked my head really good. And I, this is all on video because 
we all, we film everything and my, my film guys behind me laying down, Oh, and just filming everything. And I thought, boom. Okay. Thank you. God. I'm alive. And I assaulted. That's what I thought I did in real life. I stood there and looked at my AK, took the magazine out, looked at it again. If that guy had popped up, cause now we're two meters from each other, he would have killed me. And, um, and then I got, and then they, and then the Kurds got courage and they came running up hey, and then got shot right away. Mm-hmm. Got shot right through the chest. He's out. And they all run back again. Oh, I guess that's not going to work. So it's just me. But I had a, one of my teammates named Micah, who'd never been in the army. He's in second range battalion right now. I've never been in the military before, but was with me six years in Burma. And in Burma, we're running around with a 22 pistol or six rounds in a nine mil llama or no guns being chased by the Burma army all the time. That's a, that's another war story. That's the life of a gorilla. We live that life. So he actually is pretty competent for a civilian. So I'm rolling around. I try to roll into the trench like this and shoot. And I come face to face with the guy and our barrels almost touch. And he misses me and I get him in the shoulder and I don't stay there. This is not a movie, man. Because I, I hang out there. He's, he's firing full auto. And it's barrels like this. So I roll back out. That didn't work. I'm out of ammo. Take my pistol out, put it down. Mike, you got any more ammo? Yeah, I've got one magazine left. And could we fired like five magazines by now. And he gives me the mag. I put it in. And I said, what do you, how many runs you got? Eight rounds. I said, just put them in at the trench. You don't have to hit anything. Just put them in the trench. Just press them. So he did that. And I jumped up and ran about 15 meters down the, the other long axis the other way. Turned. And that, it worked. That guy was looking up. Both of them were looking up at Micah's round. They couldn't see him. The rounds were coming in like this. And right when I lined up on them, they saw me. They turned their heads. But I, I shot one guy seven times in the chest with an AK. So he's down. Then I shot the other guy. I was alternating shooting both guys. And then I advanced forward, and then the Kurds come running up again. Awesome! And then the guy I shot seven times in the chest pulls his knife out. He's still alive. Let's talk about dedication. Pulls his knife out, and I shot him in the head. Got down. The third guy I would shot, the last guy, had a suicide vest. So as the Kurds jumped in, they started tugging on him. We're like, hey, don't tug on his vest. And the guy stepped back and had a BKC, you know, light machine gun, put the whole thing into the guy's chest. Of course, suicide vest went off. We had three casualties right there unnecessary <laughs> um i got hit in the leg by the other guy by that guy's leg and i thought i was like oh no i just lost my leg and i see this bloody thing no it was nothing just his leg smacking into me anyways later on i put came out of that and this curd said can you teach us how to do that let's teach you how to do what clear a trench with hand grenades they all had grenades they had no idea they'd never practiced that event so i'll finish the story by saying i thank god for the u.s army that trained me many years ago to do that and to all the soldiers or anybody who listens to this, that's why you practice. And you practice again and again, daytime, nighttime, and all this, so that you can do it. So I want to ask one, one follow-up question to this story before we move on to the next one. And, and the big one for me is, you know, teaching here at West Point and teaching cadets, one of the hardest things that I find as an instructor teaching military science, sort of basic tactics, is, is understanding sort of the human element, that the things that you are planning in a military science course are not little icons on a map. They're human beings that have to physically do this. Um, and the hardest part for my cadets, especially to conceptualize, is you may find yourself within punching range, within hand-to-hand range of people. That's part of the job, potentially, mm-hmm. and, and is more likely to happen than we tend to give... Uh, credit to or, or credence to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious sort of emotionally and and psychologically what that experience, whether it's in, in this particular story or in, or in others, what that feels like and what that 
how you think about that in retrospect, being that close to the enemy and, and engaging in that sort of very hand-to-hand almost kind of combat? Yeah, I have a deep sadness in me that if I talk enough about it, I'll cry. But it's not about killing ISIS. It's about um, friends I lost and watching little girls and little boys literally get shot in front of me. I remember picking up one guy, shot in my arms. As I'm picking him up, his daughter shot through the back of her head, bullet comes out her eye. I'm trying to stuff him in a Humvee. Our Humvee's completely immobilized. It's that one, actually. And we're inside it. We can't move. My driver goes out. He gets another Humvee. He gets shot six times, goes down. My translator gets killed. Anyways, every day it was like this, man, in the Battle of Mosul. And so emotionally, I cried a lot in Mosul. Not not during the fighting, but if there was a break, I just... <laughs> or sometimes I did fight. Cry, I cried a couple times during the fighting in the sense that we'd be breaking down the street and all of a sudden 300 civilians just come running for their lives and they're getting shot in the street and I'd scoop up a kid or something and run back with them and the father's crying can you save my kid and I couldn't then I would cry maybe you only have 10 seconds to cry with them but I really cry because I'm a dad too you know how that would be a bit oh. so those were hard in terms of killing the enemy which happened um, a few times in Mosul I felt they chose this they chose this path they were out to do evil things and they chose this path and I'm grateful I got to live through it. I didn't think I'm like morally superior to them as normally, but I, my, my path is morally superior. I'm not morally superior, but we're trying for something good here. And so when I killed them, I actually felt like shooting a deer or a bear, except, you know, much more deadly. And it was like a relief. They're done. They're down. And that was one thought. And I remember looking at them with pity, thinking, man, what a waste of some studs here. Um, I didn't feel bad about it. And then about an hour later after one particular engagement, I thought, oh, these guys got parents. You know, it just kind of dawns on you. Sure. It doesn't matter how bad your kid is. You don't want anybody killing your kid. So in, you know, killing ISIS later, which I did um, emotionally, I was just glad I lived and glad they died. Um, the, the only um, difficult emotional time, I would say, or psychological time I had is when ISIS had killed this little kid right in front of me, right after I made friends with him. Like, that's a whole other story. But I connected with this individual little girl three years old tugging on my leg america america she's dead i told my pastor from from burma his name is monkey i said monkey that's it we give food medicine clothes and shelter and all the stuff we do and i'm be in the front line but in between i'm going to kill every isis i can because i cannot live with myself anymore to see a little kid get killed i started crying i just can't live with myself man and it's not because i'm a hero or nothing i just can't it's wrong and then I realized what I called justice was revenge, and it was with hate. Now, after that, I did kill people, and I killed more ISIS, but I didn't hate them. And I feel that, you know, getting to emotion, if I let that control me in the name of justice, I think it would warp me. So I want to transition to uh, another another story, and one that I think people may, may be a little bit more familiar with, and, and I'll go to... I think people are more familiar with it primarily because of a picture that if mm-hmm. I, I may is is probably famous at this point um, of you rescuing a, a little girl. It's that one. Um, yep, that one right there um, in Mosul. And obviously, again, you guys are an NGO. You're not there to slug it out with with ISIS. And and the real reason you're there is is to help people mm-hmm. to do the, the mm-hmm. humanitarian aid piece. And that, in a lot of ways, means conducting rescues, as you mm. said a couple of times. Um, can you kind of walk me through the the situation and, and the circumstances around uh, rescuing this little girl yeah. in uh, Mosul? 
Well, the week leading up to that, I was with the Ninth Division. We we're trying to take out a hospital on by the first bridge, and we couldn't. We had lots of casualties, and we almost got killed multiple times trying to run through fire and drag people out. And in the end, they could not penetrate that side. So the Ninth Division rotated around to try another axis. During that rotation, which is going to take about three to five days to get them reset, as we started to move with them, the um, the ERD, Emergency Response Division, the Federal Police, came came up to us because we've been in battle space with these guys all the time. Saying, hey, while they're moving, can you help us? Because I don't know what's going on, but ISIS is shooting civilians a lot right now. It's not just like one family a day. There's like over 100 people shot in one street, and we can't handle it. I said, So I told the 9th Division, hey, can I stay with these guys a couple days while you're rotating? And they said, yeah, do whatever you need to do. So my my wife and kids are back at the CCP, except my, my oldest daughter. She's driving one of our ambulances. And we, we, have, a, we have another Humvee by now because they gave us a second one. We got a Humvee, an armored vehicle, and an armored ambulance, and we drive up into the into this part of Mosul. And right away, and we're following an ERD guide. Right away, we see about sixty people running down the street, or crawling, or being drugged. All almost all of them shot, except for the ones that were helping. And they're crying, and and one little girl died right in our arms, femoral bleeding, as we stuffed her in a Humvee, and it was horrible. This dad comes to me, he's crying, and he's going, they're killing babies, babies, babies. And they shot my two daughters. I'm getting this through my translator, the second translator. first one's already dead. And he starts crying. I cried with him, and he described how his daughters were dressed. And he's running, holding one kid, and they get shot next to him in the head. They're dead. He knows they're dead. He can't save them. But he can't stop. He's under direct fire to save his last kid. But as a father, you don't want to live with him anymore. He's crying. and What's going on? So this is June the 1st. And it takes us almost the whole day to treat the stream of people that come in. We, we stabilize them, stick them in the ambulances, and they drive back, and then they come back again and do it again. By that night, we're like, where is this coming from? Well, the Iraqi army is fighting for their lives everywhere, so it's not like you got someone to just take you down there. You know, they're, So we, we kind of find our way down these alleyways, and, and we get this main road. It's a, it's a four-lane highway across the first bridge and the northernmost bridge of Mosul. And um, I look down, and all of a sudden I see there's a lot of bodies out there. just getting ready to be sunset. A lot of bodies. And then as soon as you stick your head around, so you pull back. And then the fight goes on all night. And all night long, um, ISIS is attacking across this road. But people who've been shot but lived through the, through the massacre are crawling across at night. And so all night we're grabbing people and taking care of them, and the ambulance is running all night long. The next morning, I go back out. This is June the second. Look out out on that road, and you could barely poke your head out. And you get shot, and up they're shooting us from the hospital and Pepsi complex. There, they got ZSU 23s in ground mode. They've got cornet anti tanks in like a toe. They got all the small arms. No armor survives down that road. It's just wrecked, and certainly no person. I see all these dead bodies, and then I notice against the wall, hey, there's some kids left alive. More than one, three to five kids. One one one, one little kid, maybe three. A boy with a shirt and no pants wandering around the dead bodies picking up stuff like nothing's happening. Well, he doesn't last long. He drifts away from this away from this wall that masks ISIS fire and he gets killed. Well, how are we going to save him? If you step out, you're dead. Even armor is dead. So I had a good relationship with the U.S. military mm-hmm. throughout this whole battle because a lot of these guys that I— Gary Valesky, the 101st Division commander, was a platoon leader with me in Range Battalion. Mm-hmm. And we raced together in the, in the EIB road march and sure. all this, you know. So I talked to all these guys all along. They helped us a lot. There was a lot of things they did. We could describe something, and they would take action if they wanted to on it. In the Western Desert, wow. Well, once we got in the city, it was General Scott Flaunt, 
who was um, in charge of that battle space and his staff. And I called him up on the, my iPhone and said, sir, can you look at what's happening here? Whether you can, you can. There's a bunch of dead people. And there were like five kids this morning. I think there's three left. And, I, and everybody's dead. But there's a, at least one kid left alive, maybe two, and one man, maybe two, alive. And we need to get him, but we need smoke. Can you give us smoke? He goes, well, you know, coordinate with the Iraqis. Because the answer is yes. But it'll make my life easier if you can have the Iraqis call me. So I run over to the Iraqis and go, hey, if you can give us a bulldozer and an Abrams and three armored Humvees in addition to ours. The Abrams will go first and blast the way behind the smoke screen. The bulldozer will clear the way for the Humvees. Humvees will go. We'll go right up to that wall, pull everybody in and drive out. Couldn't, couldn't make it happen. They're fighting their own other battles. And finally, I said, can you call the Americans? Uh, and then I called the Americans. I said, call them to help them call you, whatever it is. And finally, it worked out. Iraqis and Americans are lashed together on the smoke. They start, Americans start dropping smoke. The Iraqis still wouldn't go. So I got the, the exo, the, the general left. The exo was a full colonel. I grabbed him, and I said, sir, please come with me. He comes to this window we could see out, and smoke is falling. Can we go? He goes, okay, one tank. That's all you get. Take it or leave it now. So I turned to my team, and I said, who will go with me? And Monkey, my pastor, video guy too, mm-hmm. he goes, he points to the other video guy, Zhao Sang will go, <laughs> volunteer somebody else. <laughs> Anyways, but he ended up coming with me. So it was myself, um, Monkey, my, my team pastor and video guy. That's why it's on film, because he filmed it. And then an ex-Navy SEAL, who of course is going to write a book, mm-hmm. a true story, but he's a good guy. And an ex-Marine who'd fought in Fallujah. And then a translator who was a Syrian refugee who had no idea what he was really doing with us. Well, you know, he never went on again with us anymore. Thanks. He thought we were just going to run out there and do something sure. like behind the tank. So we ran behind this tank. And when that tank opened up, we're taking fire the whole time, but the Americans are dropping something like 90 rounds of smoke. Unbelievable. And they just masked all of ISIS. So ISIS is shooting blind. They shoot cornet. They shot mortars. They shot RPGs and all the light arms, but nothing hit the tank except small arms. We're running behind the tank. And I didn't, Man, I'm, I don't, Abrams. I don't know anything about Abrams. Mm-hmm. I, I, I had this idea. We get there and we put the people on the back, you know, and drive them. That's like an engine. That's like an oven back there. I burned all the hair on my arms trying to stay close to it. And we're going by these dead bodies. I remember going by the two little girls that the dad had told me about laying together in skinny jeans and a lunch pail. Exactly. Shot in the head. Dead. It was horrible. And the Iraqis, though, tried not to run over bodies as they went down the road. It was amazing. We're taking fire. We get up to the edge of the wall. The coax is going. The main gun's going. And the smoke starts to dissipate. I'm like, we're going to die. And inside me, I just want to get it over with. Just run out there and grab her. And I thought, nope. And this is back to military discipline also. Don't wing it. We have to take risks, but never gamble. There's a difference. And I, I prayed and thought, nope, you go now. You're not going to get it over with. You're going to die. So I got back on the horn. I said, hey, I need smoke right now. More smoke. And the guy goes, on it. I can't remember his name. I think it's Zach, the battle captain working for Eflant. F- F- more smoke and I ran to the girl um, Ephraim the Navy SEAL and Sky the Marine pivoted behind the tank and just started opening up on the closest ISIS which was about probably 50 yards away the closest position to us the main shooting was happening about 100 yards away or so maybe 100 100, 150 was their main position at the hospital but they were closer here and they were probably only 40 yards away to our right but they couldn't see us from there because this wall so these guys are shooting I went there um, rounds are coming in for me from ISIS, but they never hit me. I fell down because some rounds hit the ground underneath me, hit these like these bricks, and grabbed the girl. I had to pull her off her dead mother. Her, she'd been there three days. By now, she's the only kid left alive. Pull off her dead mother, ran back, and I remember I made this sound, ah, sound, which was fear and relief all in one. Put her, gave her to the um, Syrian translator, 
hey, there's two guys left alive on that wall. Ephraim, Sky, and I go pull those back. One guy gets killed. That leaves one guy left alive and the little girl. I got the little girl. We start moving back behind the tank. ISIS opens up even more. And Ephraim gets shot through the calf, falls down, almost gets run over by the tank, gets back up. And we get out, get get back, and the tank's shooting its main gun and supporting us. We're trying to stay in that little covered area. And I yell for Humvees. No Humvees will come. Finally, my Humvee came with one of our, our team members, pulled us out. And call. I called my wife. I said, hey, I got this little kid, only one left alive. Um, one other man, but not a relative. The whole family's dead. She's going to need some mom comfort. So my mom, my wife met me at the CCP, and my daughter was with me in the Humvee. Transferred her over, which was brutal that night. Everybody's crying for her. Anyways, long story short, um, back in a couple months ago, we were able to find a grandmother. They're reunited. As happy ending as you can have for that tragedy. Her name is Demoa, and she's smiling for the first time. That's her picture. Um, the first smile I ever saw her do. That's about six, eight months after the battle. And that was that. The next day, um, I go back to that same spot because they're still fighting. And an Iraqi private named Zuhair goes, there were people who survived the initial massacre. They're inside the Pepsi factory. They saw the rescue. They got a, found a phone, and they want us to save them. I was like, no way. Because now we go inside ISIS compound. No tank, no air support. No way. And there's one person on the outside. So I called the Americans again. Got an amazing amount of smoke. In fact, they said, if we shoot this smoke, we have no more for three more months. I said, please shoot it all. Oh, curtain of smoke. This is an important historical fact. Meanwhile, journalists on the east side of the Tigris, over a click away, are saying, Americans are dropping white phosphorus on a hospital and killing patients. If you guys can do anything, I mean, I, maybe there's another conversation later. I want to fix this. It's in Wikipedia. An allegation. Are you crazy? You're not even close to the battle. There's nobody in the hospital but Chechens mm -hmm. and crew serve weapons, and the Americans are saving lives. That general should get whatever medal you get for doing that. It was amazing. Without the Americans, we're dead. The tank would have been blown up. We would have never done it. So the second day, we got smoke. We got one old lady across because she was outside the compound. Now we're going to go in the compound, so no more smoke, no tank. And this private, Zuhair, said, we got to go do it. And I said, it's impossible. He said, I thought you were special forces. You guys can do anything. <laughs> I said, hey, man, it ain't a movie. And... He said, are you a soldier or are you a doctor? Means if you're a doctor or an NGO, you don't got to do nothing. And we, this is completely not how I ever trained to do anything in the Army. So me and four of our team, we drive across the road behind an armored bulldozer further down. We, we're about 300 meters away from ISIS now, trying to get as far as we could get. We cross at ZSU-23, takes out the armored ambulance right in front of me, clips my vehicle, 50 cal rounds come into my vehicle, then stop it. I go by, that other vehicle on fire. We, we make it across the road. We dismount. Now we're in their territory. But, you know, it's, it's a city. It's all broken. So we're talking weaving around like rats and get to this open area. As we ran across the open area, ISIS is looking at the Iraqi soldiers on the other side of the street. They never shoot us. They shoot over us, but they never shoot at us. They never see us. We're right in a courtyard like this below them. We get over. We pick up four, four people wounded. Mm -hmm. We got them all. Now we're done. And so I see a woman out in the street. This is the fourth day she's been shot. Not the woman who called us. She, she's behind three dead bodies in a blown-up car. She's out in the street completely on the, the axis of ISIS fire, and she's going, help me, or whatever in Arabic. You know what she says, and I'm like, God, just take her life because there's no way I can save her. We step out in that street. Now I can hear ISIS talking less than 20 meters. See this wall here? They're on the other side of that wall shooting at the Iraqis. They're right there, and I can hear them talking. I'm here like a, like a fellow Mr. Bean, man. I run out there. We're dead, and so I told Zahir, there's just no way, and he goes, you don't go, I go, and we all die. And this is important, the story. Who's the hero of the story? It's not me. It's an Iraqi private who's willing to dice it. I'll die for everyone here. I was like, 
you got a wife and kids, man. Oh, so I was in trouble. And he's going to do it. And we're all going to die. And we have to carry these people. They're going to they're open this door right exactly like that. ISIS is going to come in that door and kill us all. They're going to realize something's up. So he stops and his eyes light up and he points to the roof. And there's this white conduit wire. And he goes, and I pull it down and cut it with my knife, tie 30 meters. There's one little girl, the only little girl not shot in that particular day. Everybody else is shot. She was the daughter of one of the people who were shot. And she's all catatonic, like, you know, four days with dead bodies, all stinking by now. And he says something in Arabic, blah, 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 blah. And she runs 15 meters. And ISIS takes two shots at her, kapak, kapak. But from that angle, there's a low wall. And they must have only seen, like, the top of her head or, or didn't focus and didn't know what it was. She throws the wire, lands on this woman's chest, runs back, and we, the woman ties around her arm, and we drag her in, which is a great technique I never thought about, which you used a lot in Mosul. When you got a casualty out in the open, you should have a rope. Throw it to them, and you drag them in. Anyways, you drug her in. ISIS never saw it. And they, they kept shooting over us and other. They never saw us. And it took us over two hours to get everybody out, mm-hmm. carrying them through this pe- Pepsi factory. So those um, two rescues were back-to-back, and we did more after that. But the main thing of that story to me is God helped us. And the heroes of the story were an Iraqi private who would never give up. And this little girl who went on through the wire. So I, you've talked about it a lot over the course of these two stories. And, and I think it's really, really fascinating. You're very passionate and, and sincere in, uh, in the way that you understand what you're doing. And I'm just curious for, for those kids that you rescued or the people that you rescued, what does that mean for you personally? And what does it mean to mean to them? Do you think mm-hmm. that you're willing to do that? Well, when I got behind it, when I was behind the tank, getting ready to run out, I, I was sure I was going to die. I've been in a lot of fights, but this is one of those, like, there's no way you can live through this one. And I thought, if I die today trying to save this kid, my wife and kids will understand. Because my whole world just shrunk down to just my wife and kids and I. Nothing else mattered. They'll understand if dad dies doing this, because I'd want somebody to do that for my kid. Even if they're going to die. If, if you said, hey, I could possibly save your kid, I'll probably get killed. I'd just say, please try, man. And that that's what it meant for me um successfully being part of that rescue and some others i always had the same feeling i was i would be carrying because this happened seven different times for us i'd be carrying whoever it was back once i was out of the fire and going i can't believe this happened it was the most joyous relief plus joy and like noble feeling like i know i'm not noble at all but wow i got to be part of something good so to me, it means like my own kid. And there was a story I didn't tell, but I was sitting, one time I was sitting on a street we'd cleared with a lieutenant that I love, Lieutenant Hussein, super stud, man. He, he, you would love him. He'd be great in any infantryman's army. I don't know where the picture is. That is him. I'm sitting together with him, and we have left flank security, but left flank security collapses to eat lunch. And around the corner comes ISIS, seven yards away. They close to within five, four and a half, five yards. They're right here. There's four of them, one behind the corner, the, the attitude to you would be, if you're there and Hussein is here, ISIS, one guy would be under that chair, one guy would be over this corner, and one guy would be here. And all of them were shooting before we knew it. Mm-hmm. We're done. He gets shot six times, three in the chest, twice in the arm, once in the leg. I get shot in the arm. And I thought, I'm done. We really screwed up. And I brought my weapon up. This is, again, training. I don't even remember my weapon coming off safe, which it was on safe. Mm-hmm. Off safe, up. I shot the first guy. There was, he, he realized I wasn't dead. He thought he got me. But I wasn't dead, so he moved behind a blown-up car, and I just got up on my knee, and I could see through the front and back windows and shot him, killed him through those windows. And I turned to the next guy, 
and wounded him and shot the gun out of his hand, not on purpose. That's just where all the rounds went. And the third guy spent 30 rounds at me. And we looked, at, and I was just ready to kill him, and he ran away. Hussein's there, don't leave me. And I'm, I had hang, I always carry seven frags. I'm just throwing grenades, and because there's more around the corner. I'm just throwing grenades, and I'm not going to leave you, but I can't help you until I get pushed them back. Sure. And I'm yelling, help me, somebody help me. And one of my guys comes running out, an atheist Marine, who's like, I don't believe in God, but if he's there, you're following him. And um, one of my Kachin tribal guys, they got him on, and they're shooting and throwing grenades, and we pull this guy back. Anyways, he lives. I'll show you a picture later. It's pretty amazing, but he told me this. Kind of getting back to your question. Before I called you uncle, he always called me uncle. He said, now I call you my father because I'd be dead without you. And I said, I'm honored, but you should know this. Three days up to that fight where I saved your life, you saved my life. You kind of forgot that part. You were the first in the door every time. I wasn't. I was way back, man. So you saved my life every single day. So one, the biggest result to me has been... um, well, one, this core of sorrow, I just seem to have it in here. Maybe you've got it too. I don't know. We use so many loss. But I think you can live well with sorrow. We just can't live well with shame. It's okay to have sorrow. You can still live well. But the biggest result is love, where I love these people that I got to be part of their lives. I love the Iraqis. I didn't even know the Iraqis. I didn't want to love them, but I love them now. And that's been the biggest gift for me. I think that's a good note to end on. I appreciate taking the time to talk to us and uh, all the, you know, the, the sincerity and the, the stories that you have. So thank you so much. Thank you, man. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. Before you go, remember to be sure to follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It's a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.